Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. I'm just going to continue on our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We just continue to make our way through the verses. Uh, last week, we began to talk about the five different areas that Jesus identifies in Matthew 5 as really what he does is he takes the teachings of the Pharisees and explains how those teachings were not accurate and he begins to, to reinterpret them by Holy Spirit revelation. And the issue isn't with the law of Moses per se, it's with the way that the Pharisees had interpreted the law of Moses and twisted the things and, and falsely taught the people. And so Jesus says six different times in the chapter, you've heard it said, but I say. In other words, it's not about what was written, it was about the way they taught about what was written. You've heard it said, but I say. And so uh, we identified those areas last week, and I see it a little differently than, than others. I see five areas of uh, sin or toxins that we have to overcome by the grace of God, and then how Jesus gives us the sixth area that that's the actual antidote to the other five. <clears throat> and so I'll just lay those out for you once again for those that are taking notes, and if you want to write these down, those different areas. And most of your Bibles, you'll have headings that go along with these different areas. They may not say what, what I'm going to call them, but the, the, generally this, the, the way that the Bibles are written, they're, they're kind of broken down in these, these sections. So the first area we, we went over last week, it's Matthew 5, 21 through 26. It's anger or inner contempt, contempt in the heart. Matthew 21, uh, 5, verse 21 through 26. And then verse 27 and 28 is lust. And we talked about that last week. How Jesus said it's, it's not simply the act of uh, sexual immorality that's at issue. What's issue is the heart that continues to, to uh, give itself to sexual immorality. That, that's the point. It's, it's the fantasy of the heart. That's the, real, that's the real issue. And then verse 31 and 32 is covenant breaking. Let me see here. Yeah, yeah, sorry. The lust is 27 through 30. I just wrote that down wrong. And then the covenant breaking is 31 and 32, specifically the marital covenant. We'll talk about that today. And then verse 33 through 37 is swearing falsely. Verse 38 through 42 is retaliation. And verse 43 through 48 is the answer, which is love. The answer is love. So 33 through 37, swearing falsely. 38 through 42, retaliation. 43 through 48, love. So uh, let me just say this on the front end. Um, I'm sure many of you are aware, and I'm sure some of you are not. But uh, one of our Christian leaders in the nation, who's got a pretty large platform, uh, came out this week. And said that he believes that it's okay for people to divorce uh, if one of the spouses has Alzheimer's. And he identified Alzheimer's as a quote-unquote form of death. And basically just said uh, it would be better for the man to divorce than to commit adultery. And um, 
I just think it's unusual that such a statement would be made on the very weekend that I'm supposed to be speaking on Matthew 5, 31 and 32. One of Jesus' core uh, statements he made on divorce and marriage. And so I felt like the Lord was sort of teeing the ball up for me. The more I prayed about it, I thought, okay, he's really giving me an opportunity to make a, um, a statement on these things. Um, I want to just say that I totally disagree with uh, that comment, that I don't believe that if a spouse gets sick with Alzheimer's or any other sickness, that divorce is a legitimate alternative. I believe that's completely wrong and completely false. And while um, I bless uh, you know, ministers who love Jesus, uh, that's just a... That's a that's really a tragedy that that statement was made. I think it's just simply part of a plan that the enemy is using right now to, to deface marriage. And he'll use whatever means necessary that he, that are at his disposal to pervert uh, the covenant of marriage. Because marriage is a declaration of the knowledge of God. The marital covenant is a declaration of who God is. When every day that you see a husband and wife who are joined together in covenant, every day that you see that, that's declaring of an eternal state that all believers will share with Jesus. There is a day coming, it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb, where Jesus will be joined eternally with His bride. That's a day in the future for all believers. That's an incredible thought that deity and humanity will be joined together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That that's going to actually happen is just, it's unfathomable that, that the uncreated one would join himself to his creation in such a manner. And so the Lord gives us the natural marriage covenant between a, a man and a woman. He gives us that to declare of who He is. That's the critical point. The reason why He set it up is to declare who God is. He's a bridegroom God who's radically in love with His people, who's going to marry. His son is going to marry His bride. And so every day that we see a, a, a married couple, it is a declaration above everything else that it is. It is a declaration of who God is. And every opportunity you get to go to a wedding, it is a holy matrimony. Because it is a picture of Jesus who's made his bride spotless and presented her to himself. And that day that we're looking forward to is a day that's coming, an exciting day ahead for believers. And every marriage ceremony, it's, it's, I, get the, I get the best seat at the weddings because you know, I get to officiate weddings. And uh, I'll just say this. My first few weddings, I was so nervous. Because nobody wants to mess up a wedding. You know, you don't want to be known as the guy that really blew those people's wedding that one time. So, you know, first few weddings, totally nervous. But man, after, you know, after you get over that initial hump of, of, you know, wow, this is a really important thing. You go, oh no, it's, it's not really important because, you know, all of the... 
all the arrangements and all the, you know, flowers and guest lists. It's not really important for that reason. It's really important because as these people make a covenantal vow with one another, the two become one flesh. And it's exactly the same as the union that we share in the Lord that will experience forever and ever and will be completely culminated at the marriage supper. And so that testimony of a man and a woman coming together and the two becoming one through the marriage covenant, it declares the knowledge of God like nothing else. It's powerful. It's holy. And so I want to just read the verse from Matthew uh, 5, 31 and 32. And, uh, and then I want to just make a few statements about marriage. And then I want to come back and get Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, 31, 32 in context and explain what the specific thing he's dealing with right there in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I want to just also say this on the front end. I am personally engaged in a study on the issue of marriage. And um, these looking at the, the Sermon on the Mount has kind of compelled me into it. And I would just say that my personal beliefs on some of the nuances are still developing. And here's why. If you spend any time studying uh, what Christians believe about marriage and divorce and remarriage, you'll find there are six accepted streams of belief. Two primary and, and four kind of subsidiary. And it does, you can read this scholar and this scholar and this scholar and this scholar, and you'll find that the views are... Very, very, very few do you find a, a, a consensus. There's many, many good people that believe across the board on the issue. And so I'll just say this, that uh, I'm developmental in my theology on, you know, marriage and divorce. There are certain things that I think are evident from the scripture. Uh, and then there's certain nuance that are maybe not as evident, for me at least. And I'm, I'm, in, I'm in developmental mode, asking Holy Spirit to release revelation to me about it. Now, what I'm not in developmental mode is about is whether or not sickness constitutes proper grounds for divorce. That's not developmental. That's, that is not at issue. And so I want to just be very, very clear about that. The other thing I'm not developmental about is that marriage is only between a man and a woman. That's it. There are no other opportunities for holy matrimony to take place. Humans can call it what they want. Same-sex marriage, whatever they want to call that. But under the scripture, under the Bible, there is no other opportunity. It's holy matrimony between a man and a woman. Okay. All that to say, let's look at the verses. Let's set the table. And then let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5. I want to mention, uh, keep prefacing, I'm sorry. I want to mention this. My goal is not to shame anybody who's been through the tragedy of divorce. Uh, that is not the goal at all. And so if you've experienced the tragedy of divorce, uh, I'm not taking aim at you. I, I'm not trying to belittle you. But at the same time, I, I want to deal tenderly with those who have gone through divorce, but also I want to exalt the sanctity and the holiness of marriage and be true to the Scripture. And so, uh, you know, don't think if you've been through divorce, I'm just taking aim at you to beat you up. That's not my point. My point is to declare the word of God with truth as best I can while being tender towards anybody who's experienced this, this tragic thing called divorce. Okay, good. Matthew 5, let's look at verse 31. 
This is under the section that I call covenant breaking. Jesus says, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, causes the one that's divorced to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, we at a glance, that, those two verses don't compute to us because our modern divorce arrangement, what we, what we practice in courts of law today, is totally different than this certificate of divorce that Jesus is referencing. And so I'm going to get to that in a minute. I want to give the background thoughts from the Lord on what marriage is really about. So flip over to Ephesians 5. And I'll just say this, if you want to hear my teachings on marriage, one of our podcasts, it's our most downloaded one, The Glory of Marriage. I take eight sessions, eight hours of teaching. I believe it's eight, maybe it's seven, but whatever. More than five, less than ten. A bunch of time, and I go through in detail uh, much of, of what the scripture says about marriage. Now let's look at Ephesians 5, verse 31. Now that Ephesians 5 passage is Paul's premier teaching on marriage. But the critical thing that we've got to get in view in light of this conversation is Paul's summary of that passage. Where he goes and quotes Genesis 2. Ephesians 5, Genesis 1 and 2 really. But Ephesians 5, verse 31, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is how it was in the beginning. This is what Jesus references in his further teaching in Matthew 19 on on marriage and divorce. This one flesh reality, a man leaving his father and mother and being joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The marriage covenant is, and and he goes, he goes, this is a great mystery. And here's why. You take two people who essentially do not know each other. They're separate from one another in that they are not siblings. They're, They're not from the same family. And you join them together and they become familial. They become family. And even more than becoming family and sharing a name, they actually become one in the spirit, one flesh. How does that happen? How does that mystery, that wonderment happen? Paul goes, it's a great mystery. It's a supernatural transaction. The marriage covenant is a supernatural transaction. And when I, when I do uh, premarital counseling with couples, I tell them, I say, listen, Something dynamic is going to happen when you vow to one another. Because when you give your word, when you covenant together, in that moment, God takes that covenant seriously, and the supernatural power of God joins them together. It's ratified through the sexual relationship, but it's covenanted with your words. Just like when you got born again. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart 
that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The covenant is declared with the words of your mouth, and God takes that covenant very seriously, and something supernatural happens. Two people that are separate from one another, from different families, different backgrounds, they actually join and become one. It's powerful. That, that mystery is powerful. I mean, there's just, there's just few things that are as unique in their creation as that. I mean, that is just, um, I, you know, you can, I said to my wife, I said, till death do us part. Do you take her as your, as your wife? Yes, I do. And, she said, and, they, and the minister said, do you take him as your husband? She said, yes, I do. And a miracle happened. Something supernatural transpired. We became one. Amazing. Amazing. So he said, a man shall, be, shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The, the two shall become one flesh. But here's the statement that we've got to get. And it's what I expounded on a minute ago, but I want you to see it. This is a great mystery, for sure it is. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. The marriage covenant is chiefly about Jesus. You've got to get this. Marriage is chiefly about the knowledge of God. Marriage is not chiefly about you. You go, well, how how can you say that? I mean, it's me getting married. Yeah, but your covenant is a symbol of a greater covenant, and God is the first one in view in the covenant you're going to make in your marriage. God is the first one in view. And where we have erred greatly is we have made marriage chiefly about the partners and and lesser about God when it's firstly about God and secondly about the partners. Man, I'm preaching good. No, this is real. It's firstly about God. So, you don't enter into marriage flippantly. That whole go to Vegas, get Elvis to marry you thing, that's a bad idea on 27 levels. Who takes this bride? I mean, you don't want that. You, don't, you just don't want that. You, you just, that's not the plan. So this thing is a declaration, a proclamation of God. We're declaring God. Through our covenant with one another, we're declaring, he said, it's, the mystery's great. He goes, but I'm speaking principally about Christ and the church. This whole thing is a picture. And when you get that down in your heart a little bit, and you realize this is not primarily about you, it's primarily about Jesus and his covenantal relationship with the church, something shifts in the way that you approach your marriage. Because now you're wondering about the testimony that you're living. You're wondering about the declaration that you're living. You have that in view is my point. You consider the testimony of who is Jesus. How does the world perceive Jesus through my marital relationship? Because that's what it's about primarily first. It's about the declaration of Jesus. 
And so what happens is we cheapen marriage by making it primarily about us, by primarily about our wants, our likes, our dislikes, our preferences. We get these concepts that you can fall in and out of love. It's false. Love is forever. Love isn't a feeling. Love is a choice that you choose a million times over. People, they, they divorce for preference with themselves in view, their own desires on the throne, and they, they, they sever covenant over foolish things, claiming incompatibility. But I want to tell you something. There's never been one more incompatible with his bride than the Lord Jesus. And the last time I checked, he will never leave you or forsake you. No matter how messed up you might be. So we claim incompatibility without a a true vision of even what this is about. And what we've done is we've diminished marriage. We've done violence to the covenant. And in doing so, we've lowered our testimony of the knowledge of God. We've lowered the vision of who God is in it all, and we've further lowered the power of covenant. And so this mystery about Christ and the church, it's about the fame of his name. It's about the glory of his name. And when a husband understands that, he will then desire to do what Paul said. Love your wife as Christ loves the church. You will desire to lay your life down for her in view of who is God laying his life down for his bride. That you, if you don't have the revelation of God in your marriage, and marriage is principally humanistic and, and, and you-centered, you will approach it with a completely different lens. It will be about you instead of about him. But if it's about him, there's a compelling something in your heart that calls you into covenant. It calls you into the choice of love. It calls you into overlooking each other's faults and forgiving continuously. Because that's God. It's God. So the mystery of Jesus in the church has to be at the forefront when we're thinking about the marriage covenant. Love, as I said, it's a choice. And it's primarily for the blessing of others. And it would be a glory. It would be a glory to live your life blessing and serving your spouse at the expense of your own preference. It would be a glory. Heaven would value that massively. And so each spouse should live trying to outserve and outbless the other, claiming love. I want to love you. See, we've made, we've made love this. We've made love equal uh, what I want, what, what makes me happy. And so we go, man, I really love, I really love you because you make me feel so good. I really love you because I feel happy when I'm around you. I really love you because I love me. <laughs> it's really so many, they're saying I love you, and what they really mean is I love me. I love me. 
I love how you cook for me. I love how you rub my feet. I love how I feel. I love me. <laughs> Most of the time when we're saying I love you, we're not saying I love to serve and give and bless you for you at the expense of my own preferences. But love is for the other. Come on. Love is for the other. So in marriage, we love, we bless the other. This covenant is holy. It's entered into for life, regardless of health, wealth, or your personal benefit. It's a holy covenant entered into for life, regardless of wealth, health, or personal benefit. And that's why we add things like, till death do us part. Like that actually meant, it's supposed to mean that. In sickness and in health. For richer, for poorer. For better, for worse. Isn't it crazy how when things are for better, our marriages just thrive, but when they're for worse, so often we depart. It just means we didn't mean it. We didn't mean for worse. We didn't mean for worse. We meant for better. (laughs) This thing, we've got to raise the bar on what this thing is even about, what this covenantal commitment is even about. I think it's really appropriate that Jesus follows up these two verses on the marriage covenant with, let your yes be yes and your no be no. (laughs) Just say it and do it. And here's the thing. When we vow in marriage, there is a standard by which we vow. In other words, there's, there's one who's vowed before us that gives us the standard by which we vow. And that's Jesus' eternal vow that he's made to his people. He's made a vow of love He's, he's uh, expressed it in the cross. He's given himself fully for the benefit of others in love. He laid his life down. His vow to us is sealed by his own blood. And he's followed it up with, I'm with you always. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Even to the end of the age, I'm with you. Our vows that we make in marriage have that standard as the backdrop. There's not some other standard. There's not a human standard. The standard is Christ's vow for his church. Christ's love for his church. That's the standard by which we vow. And that's why it's not subject to wealth or sickness. Amen. Our vows are not subject to wealth or health or our personal preferences. We vow for life just like Jesus vowed for eternity. Okay. Now let's take back, let's go back to Matthew 5 and take a look again at verse 31 and 32. I'll just read it again. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. 
And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, I just like I said, these are sticky, sticky verses, touchy subject, if you will. People um, have all sorts of different ideas about what this what this means. Now, at the center of this discussion is the permission to divorce and what the certificate of divorce, or it's really called the certificate of divorcement, what that even meant. And so the conversation that Jesus is having here has in its backdrop Deuteronomy 24. You just write it down. Just write down Deuteronomy 24. First three or four verses where Moses explains in real brief terms the concept of this certificate of divorce, and he uses, uh, I don't want to say it's ambiguous language, but it's, it's just this broad language. Uh, he uses a term that could mean a bunch of different things. Essentially, this, this term called indecency. If you find some indecency, said it to the husbands, if you find some indecency, in your wife, you may give her a certificate of divorcement. Now, here's the thing. The certificate of divorcement is not like what, what happens in our day and age when people get divorced and when a judge gives to people who are divorced. The certificate of divorcement is completely different. The certificate of divorcement, basically, Moses puts it in place for three reasons. Because up until that point... Men were very, very treacherous at different times with their wives. They would send them away. They would just quit providing for them. And then sometimes they'd, they'd make them come back and serve them. And, and they dealt very treacherously with them in, in the areas of, of uh, sexuality and, and just demands on the woman. And, and they, could, they could just send a woman away they would just do it for anything. Just, just If there was some displeasure, just give me another woman. I don't want this one. So Moses puts in place the concept of this certificate of divorcement to protect the women. Now, I know that sounds backwards because we have our current idea of divorce, but that's what it was for. It was to protect the women, so that they couldn't just get sent away for anything and brought back in or whatever. And see, the only uh, thing that they were supposed to be getting divorced for was adultery. So if, if a man sent a woman away, it was essentially saying about her, she's an adulteress. That's why I don't want her anymore. So it was creating this, this real stigma on these women, and, and they had no chance to provide for themselves. So Moses makes an allowance. This was never a command it was a concession. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew 19. We'll read that verse in a minute. But divorce was a concession. It was never uh, prescribed. It was permitted. And what ends up happening by Jesus' day is the Pharisees, have, uh, they've kind of just uh, mixed the, the law with a little bit of uh, uh, Roman kind of teaching and philosophy, and they made divorce a command. You can It's commanded to divorce your wife. Jesus said that's not the point at all. In Matthew 19, you can write the verses down, 3 through 19. They asked Jesus, they said, so, so uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus references what God said at the beginning. He says, the two shall become one flesh. 
And so he says, don't let anybody separate what God put together. And then they said, well, why did Moses command divorce? And Jesus goes, he never did. He never commanded divorce. But he allowed it because of the hardness of your hearts. And so what he does, Moses puts in place this idea of divorcement to protect the women from not just being abandoned and thrown away and made to look like an adulteress. So here's what the three things that that the certificate of divorce under Moses, what it did. Number one, the very first thing it did was it cleared the woman of being known as an adulteress. If she got a certificate of divorcement from her husband, that meant she was not an adulteress. That cleared her of that. Accusation. Number two, it freed her from having to provide any marital obligations. And so what would happen is these men would send their wives away. And then on a whim, they'd pull them back in and say, you still have to, you know, you know, take care of the children. And you have to, you know, you know, uh, provide, you know, for me sexually and all these things. And just really treacherous. So if he divorced, if a man divorced his wife, he couldn't, he couldn't get remarried to that one. Totally trying to uh, protect this woman. And so the third thing it was, it was designed to do was prevent frivolous divorce. That was the whole point. It wanted to get rid of the accusation that she was an adulteress. It wanted to stop the men from being able to misuse and treacherously you know, bring the women back and say, you owe me kind of stuff. You're my wife. You have to do these things. And thirdly, it was to deter them from divorcing for frivolous matters. Well, that's completely different than what we think of as divorce. And so when we read this, we go, well, wasn't it written that Moses said you could give a certificate of divorce? We imagine, you know, the way that divorce happens in our society, that probably if somebody's divorcing somebody, that the one that's getting divorced, the one that, uh, you know, that is filing for divorce toward the other one, that the other one has done something wrong. Well, the certificate of divorcement was all about saying that this one hadn't done anything wrong. Does that make sense? So it's, it's opposite. It's fully opposite of the way we understand divorce today. So then, <clears throat> when Jesus comes back and he deals with this issue of divorce, and he says there in, in verse um, 31, or, or 32, well, he says in verse 31, he says, whoever divorces his wife, divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. In verse 32, when he comes back and says, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, immorality causes her to commit adultery. What he's doing there is exactly what he does the other five times when he says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. He goes, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. And so every other time, he goes, you've heard it said A, but I say to you, it's not that. It's this. And so if you understand the certificate of divorcement, you could read it like this. This is an important point. Jesus says, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorcement. And I would add that clears her of being an adulteress. Because that's what the certificate of divorcement was about. Let her give her. A, let her give him a. Uh, let him give her a certificate of divorcement that clears her of being known as an adult, adult, an adulteress. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, do you see the nuance there? Except sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And so he says, 
Really, the point, guys, isn't you can divorce for all these reasons and say she, and say she didn't do adultery. You can't do that because that's, that's not what this is about at all. You can't just divorce your wife for whatever you think and, and give her the certificate and say she's not an adulteress. He goes, the only reason you should be divorcing is, or could be divorcing is if there's sexual immorality involved. He's changing what they thought. It's the exact opposite. Does that make sense? I feel like I lost... Percentage of you. Say it one more time. See if I can. I'm trying to communicate this, but it's a it's a little bit of a unusual idea. The certificate of divorce cleared the woman from being an adulterer. It said she was not. Jesus goes. I'm telling you, you can't get divorced except for adultery. Do you see it? So what they would do is they would have all these little reasons. You know, I've read some, uh, some, some commentators on the Jewish Targums, which are just Jewish commentaries. And, and they, would even, they would even put in place if, if the woman didn't cook well. If she, you know, if she burned dinner. And they would, fall, they would file that under the Deuteronomy 24, some indecency. That's ridiculous. I'd like to see some men cook dinner. Praise God. Talk about a burnt offering. <clears throat> so they had all these ridiculous reasons that they would divorce for, and then they would do the certificate of divorce and say, well, it wasn't adultery, it was something else, something that displeased me. Jesus goes, all of that, some indecency, something that displeased you, he goes, that's a bunch of garbage. The only reason you can divorce is because of adultery. Do you see it now? He's changing the way that it had been in, in, in the society. Now, I'll just give you a little parenthesis here. I believe marital treachery, uh, two things. Number one, I believe it was a critical sin in that day and hour. And I'll tell you why. And number two, I think it is a critical sin that causes the breakdown of society. And I think probably most of you would agree with me on the second one. The The reason why I believe the first one is this. The last prophet that we have in the Old Testament, is Malachi, 400 years before Jesus. And Malachi essentially takes a whole chapter in Malachi 2 and deals with the issue of marital treachery. One of the key things that Malachi is prophesying to them about, about the sinful state of the nation, was how they were dealing treacherously with their wives. And the way that the Pharisees had twisted the law of Moses was enabling this marital treachery. And Malachi comes and he starts prophesying against that and says, God hates divorce. This is not God's idea that you would deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. And so Malachi is rebuking the wayward nation for embracing this concept of divorce in a broad way. Well, Jesus shows up and in his first public teaching is nailing the divorce thing. But let me show you this. He's not just nailing the divorce thing with these two verses. Let's just look at this again. Because I'm going to propose something I think it could be. It's just a thought. I gave you the five areas that he breaks down in Matthew 5. Anger, lust, breaking the covenant, swearing falsely, and retaliation. If you just went through those five, that's a good marriage teaching right there. Inner contempt, lust, getting divorced, breaking their covenant, 
retali- uh, uh, swearing falsely, letting your yes be yes and your no be no, and retaliation. I'll just tell you this. If you, as a couple, deal with the anger issue, repent of it and don't harbor inner contempt. If you deal with the lust issue, you don't, you don't give yourself the lust. If you keep your word and your covenant with one another and you decide you will not retaliate, you're going to stay married and it's going to be good. This is an incredible marriage teaching. Matthew 5. It's an incredible marriage teaching. And I just want to propose that perhaps, not saying it's all he was doing, but I think he might be taking that whole teaching on sin and very, in, a, in a very strategic way, just nailing this issue of treachery in marriage. Last week I said, I think the, the three in the middle, lust, covenant breaking, and swearing falsely. But the more I considered it this week, I went, no, anger, anger, inner contempt. That, man, that's, there's a reason why that one's first. <laughs> People get upset with their spouse and just hold it, a grudge against them. And that thing just festers and bitterness begins to defile them. And then they just turn to other things. And it's almost like they build on one another. And that retaliation thing, he goes, rather be wronged. You know, I mean, that, that's incredible. He goes, they ask you to walk a mile. He goes, walk two. Well, that, that just, that's just an explanation of marital love. He does, if your enemy strikes you on the cheek, give him the other one. Now, when was the last time, and I just will take, we don't have to answer the poll, but just take a little personal inner poll. When was the last time in a marriage fight, your spouse said something to you that hurts you and goes, and you said back to him, man, that hurts. Could you say another thing to me just like that? Never. The point is to be impervious to the wrongs of another. Why? Because love. Love takes no account of a wrong suffered. And so then he gives us the, the sixth thing at the end. Love. Because you've heard it said, you know, you're supposed to hate your enemy and, and love your neighbor. He goes, but I say love your enemies. Even if they happen to sleep in the same bed with you. I, I think, I mean, I really feel like he's just nailing this marital treachery thing. I, I, I think he's doing other things. But I think he's nailing the marital treachery thing. So, back to Matthew 5, 31, 32. I'm not giving the exhaustive teaching on divorce and remarriage. But I will say this. It's very clear that Jesus makes it a... He's making a big point that sexual immorality is something that... Uh, that allows there to be divorce. Divorce is never a command. It's always a concession. It's never, never prescribed. It, it, was, it was always something that, uh, you know, it was an allowance. It, it wasn't something that he demanded. And, and, and so here's the thing. You and I have many examples of marriages where there's been sexual immorality, but forgiveness and repentance and love have brought the marriages back together. You have examples of that. And so it's a concession, but it's not a command. In other words, divorce for the reason of sexual immorality is a concession, but not a command. But I think Jesus is very explicit 
that the, the point is, you're not to be getting divorced for all these frivolous reasons. He goes, sexual immorality is at the core issue of why it would be allowed. And that, that's really the statement he's making there. And so then he goes on to say, if you send her off, she's, the point is, she's not going to be able to fend for herself. She's going to ha- at that day and age, they wouldn't. The woman would have to find uh, another man to, to marry her and take her in. Because if you just send her off and there's been nothing to break your covenant, then she goes and gets married to another man. That's, he goes, that's adultery. What are you guys doing? And that's what, he's, that's what he's dealing with here. Now, as I said, I'm not giving the exhaustive teaching on divorce and, and remarriage. But I will say at the core of it, I believe this issue of sexual immorality is what Jesus gives as one of the, as, as really what he gives as the chief reason uh, that someone could, could get divorced. And, but it's never the preference. It's never the preference. Okay. That's all I want to say about that one. I will come back at some other time and I will do it probably next time I teach a series on marriage. I will do a broader teaching on divorce and remarriage. Now let's move on to verse 33 in this issue of swearing falsely. Actually, before I do that, let me just say this because this question always comes up. And I'm going to deal with people that got divorced outside of Christ. Somebody said, Well, I got divorced before I got saved. And now I'm remarried, what do I do? And I would just say this, that you also did a lot of other sins before you got saved. And every sin before you got saved is dealt with the exact same way. It's all under the blood of Jesus. Now, I will say this. I think just as if, and I've had this happen before, somebody committed a pretty heinous crime, say they, they committed murder. And then they got born again. Uh, I, I would instruct that person to go and make restitution and actually turn themselves in on that crime. They're forgiven, but there is there's a legal uh, you know issue that's got to be taken place. And I, and I've seen guys do that, and I've seen them go and turn themselves in, and I've seen the Lord move in powerful ways to to show them favor in that. And so. Uh, there are certain sins that you commit outside of Christ that have uh, natural implications that I think there needs to be an, uh, uh, you know, an attempt to make restitution and restoration for. So I would say this. If you got divorced before you got saved, and if both parties remain unmarried, I would ask the Lord for the opportunity to make a, a restitution and restoration of the initial marriage. Just like if you had committed a, uh, a, a major sin that needed some sort of restitution or restoration. Now, the sin is forgiven by the blood of Jesus, but there is the natural implications. Divorce covers your family with violence. You know, people say, well, it's better for the children if we get divorced. It's never better for the children. It's never better for the children. And so... Uh, and I know I'm not dealing with every little nuance, cases of abuse, all sorts of different things. I'm just saying this, that if you got divorced before you got saved, that sin, just like every other, is under the blood of Jesus. And if there is an opportunity to, make a, to, to restore the marriage, I, I would ask the Lord to, to uh, bring that opportunity 
to pass, and I would do what, what was in your power to see that uh, marriage get restored. I think that's the right way to handle it in light of the way that Jesus teaches on divorce and remarriage and, and marriage in, in itself. Uh, okay, good. All right, let's just deal with the swearing falsely. We'll take a little less time on it, and then we'll, we'll end. So Matthew five thirty three. here we go. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. Now, that exact phrase is not actually even in the Old Testament. Again, it's just you've heard it said. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. (laughs) Anything beyond it comes from the devil. Wow. That is an incredibly strong statement from the lips of Jesus. Now, what he's dealing with is in the time they made it a big uh, practice to swear by everything because people's word had become very, you know, you couldn't trust them, kind of like today. We have all these contracts and lawyers and every kind of give a pint of blood and, you know, put all your life up for, you know, collateral because we can't believe that you're going to do what you said you would do. I mean, that's basically how it is today. In that day, it was very, very similar. And they would swear by certain things that, so they might swear by the temple. And if they swore by the temple, they kind of were like, yeah, but I'm not actually swearing by the, the offerings of the temple. And so they'd swear by the temple and break the oath. But if they swore by the, the offerings in the temple, they thought that's more important, so we can't break that oath if we do the swear by the offering. And Jesus rebukes this strongly in Matthew 23. He goes, you, you say that the, the gold is important and the temple is nothing. He goes, you're just completely hypocritical in all of it. Because the problem with you is that you don't say what you mean and mean what you say. You've got to say your yes and mean it and keep it and say your no and mean that and keep that. And beloved, this is who we are supposed to be as Christians. That when we give our word, our word is our covenant. You don't have to swear. Now, we would never say, I swear by the church. But people all the time in our society, they go, I swear to God. It's the same exact idea. Don't swear, just say it. You're going to be there? Yes. You can count on it. You're going to do this? Yes. It's in stone. What about this? Are you going to be able to do this? No, I won't. Okay, he can't. You let your yes be yes and your no, no, and you leave it there, and you don't have to go making promises and swearing, and I double dog dare you swear on my whatever, none of that stuff. It's foolish, but here's the thing. You know, adults wouldn't ordinarily go, I swear, crisscross, applesauce. I've got kids, so I know all these things. You know, I, you know, no adult would probably do that. 
We just say yes and don't do it. (laughs) Or we just say no and mean yes, or yes and mean no. And what Jesus is dealing is at the core is the faithfulness of our hearts. Are we authentic? Are we true? Are we real? Do we live our lives with our yes being gold and our no being golden? Is our word trustworthy? Beloved, we are to be, I mean, totally above reproach in this area. When we make a commitment, we keep it. When we, when we say we're going to be somewhere, we're there. When we say we're going to do such, a, such and such a thing, we do it. And it's so often that, uh, you know, we just act like, well, now, I mean, I told you I, I would, but I'm, I'm not going to. And, and now here's the thing. Psalm 15, it says that there's a people that are commended by God who swear to their own hurt. You know, so often we'll make a commitment to somebody and it doesn't work with our you know, personal preferences. We go, ah, I don't want to do it. And we'll just cancel it. And the Lord, he goes, no, I want you to, when you, when you say yes, to keep it, even if it's not your own preferences. There's something about keeping your word, even when your word, you know, you, it's not what you're going to like. You know, you ever done that? You, you go, yeah, I'm going to do that. And you look at your schedule, you know, when you, and you had made a commitment three weeks earlier. And you look at your schedule that week and you go, oh, no. Why am I doing that? Y'all don't ever have that happen. I guess that happens to me. I go, oh, what am I thinking? And I go, okay, yes. I, I said yes. I mean yes. And yes, yes, yes. And most of the time, when I keep good on the thing that I didn't think I wanted to do, but I'm there doing it anyway, most of the time it's awesome. I think the Lord, the Lord just puts a little extra anointing on it, a little extra sauce on it just to make it a little kiss on my heart for keeping my yes, yes. There are times when things uh, come up where it's a, an emergency or a tragedy and you, ask to, you, you have to ask to be released from a thing, and that's what you do. You put the ball in the other person's court and you say, would you release me? I'll be happy to keep my commitment, but this tragedy, this, this uh, you know, a complete emergency has come up, would you release me? And you put the ball in their court and allow them to, to release you if it works for them. And I've had that happen both ways. One time they go, no, we can't release you. And the other time they go, sure, we'd love to release you. And you just have to walk that out. And that's just part of being somebody who's trustworthy. It's part of being somebody who's faithful. And that's what Jesus is dealing with, is that the people in the kingdom of God should be faithful. We should be able to count on what believers say. I know this sounds like I'm preaching to the choir, but any businessman out there, you know. I hear this from businessmen all the time. They go, I don't want to do business with any Christians. And I go, why? Because they don't keep their word. I mean, I've heard that so many times. That's not every single Christian, but beloved, this thing is rampant in the body of Christ where we don't keep our word. It's so elementary. If you say you're going to do the thing, do it. Just do it. If you say no, then keep your word. No. And I'll tell you what. This is critical as it relates to parenting. 
With your children, let your word be gold. Let it be gold in every other area of your life as well. But man, with your children, let your word be gold. You know why? Because if you can establish in them the, 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 the trust and the faith that if you said you do it, you will, you know what you're doing? You're declaring the glory of God in the truth of the word. Because when he says something in the scripture, he's going to do it. And so you be that testimony of what the Lord is like to them by always keeping your word. Amen. I'll just amen myself. And so that's what Jesus is dealing with here. He's dealing with this swearing falsely. You know, playing little games. I mean, really, that's what they were doing. They were, it's just as silly as that stuff is that I said about crisscross applesauce, whatever that is. That's what they were doing. He goes, you don't have any authority to, to make one hair white or black. He goes, you just have to keep your word and do it and, and swear to your own heart and say yes and keep your word and be faithful. Quit playing all these games with your word. <sighs> Amen. All right, good. Let's go ahead and let's just stand. We'll deal with uh, retaliation and the issue of love next week. I think it's important, this, all this swearing and not keeping your word. Jesus says that, that's all from the evil one. Well, it's because he's a father of lies. And when he speaks, he speaks lies. Everything he, he says is a lie. And when we give our word and we don't keep it, we're essentially speaking of that very nature. Of the evil one's nature. Let's just pray for a moment. Lord, I know you have much more to say about marriage and divorce. I know you have much more to say about it. I believe you're going to raise up proclaimers that will proclaim the knowledge of God in this area of marriage and covenant and love and the declaration of Christ. That truth would be understood and that there'd be a heightened revelation the glory of God in it, that we would truly keep our covenantal vows. We truly would be ones that declare the mystery of Christ and the church in our marriages. And God, in this area of keeping our word, I just pray where we have fallen away from making commitments and keeping them, I pray you would give us grace, burn in us with conviction, and then give us grace to change. We would keep our word. We'd even swear to our own heart, God. Even against our own preferences. That our yes would be yes. Something I feel strongly is that the Lord wants to raise up messengers in this area of marriage. People that would declare and proclaim the truth of the glory of God in the marriage covenant. And let me just tell you, you're not disqualified if you've been through the tragedy of divorce. Sometimes the very place where somebody is wounded is where they become a healer. 
And I just want to pray for you. If you feel like the Lord wants to, wants to uh, you know, put that message in your heart, wants to anoint you as a, a proclaimer over this issue of the glory of the Lord in marriage, it could be, you know, the... The, it could be a, a small group setting style thing, but that this is something that's in your heart to declare Jesus, who Jesus is in the marital covenant. It could be, you know, a platform thing. It could be a writing thing. It could be all sorts of different things. But if there's something about that that, that seems to you like something the Lord would, would invite you into, I just want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. So that's you. I want to invite you forward. If you say, I feel like the Lord wants to use me as a messenger in this area. The other thing I want to do is, and I I will not call you forward for this, but I just want to say this. If you find yourself under shame of a previous divorce, I believe the Lord has an answer for that. I believe He wants to release you from that and speak truth to you. And if there's an area where there needs to be restoration or restitution, I believe the Lord wants to release that to you. And so you don't have, I don't want to call that person forward, but I believe that the Lord would minister to you right where you're at. And if that's you, you can just, you and the Lord for a moment. I want to pray for that as well. So first I want to pray for these. Lord, I'm asking you right now, this area of marriage the declaration of the beauty and the glory of marriage and the glory of God in marriage, I'm asking you right now that you would release anointing and revelation, God. That we would declare Christ and the mystery of Christ and the church through the marriage covenant. I pray for real revelation to be released in this hour as there's been an onslaught and an assault against marriage to deface the knowledge of God I pray that there be real truths declared that once again restore the centrality of Christ in the marriage the glory of God in this covenant and that also restore the sanctity and the holiness of marriage God, I pray, release that to these right now. Release it to them right now. Impart grace and an invitation into revelation of it, God. Even more and more. And God, I just pray for those that are dealing with shame and brokenness and that have suffered divorce. I just pray that, God, you would release light. Your affections your emotions, that Jesus, you would bring healing. Where there's been destruction, you would bring healing and life and light. And I pray, speak tenderly, God. And even where restoration may need to be made, I pray for grace, God. Grace, 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 grace. Grace. There's always forgiveness available in Jesus under the blood of Jesus. So I'm asking by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Lord, come right now. Impart grace. Come, Holy Spirit.